Set Phasers, a highly illogical Star Trek podcast. set phasers i love your voices i've been working on them oh let me hold up the uh official merchandise mug mug, right my set phasers mug if you'd like to set your phasers to stats with our mug you sure can (laughs) good one good sell i like it all right i don't know where you get them uh steph just sent this to me so that's a good point yeah i'll I'll figure i'll figure out a way to make that just find steph on the street yeah (laughs) i mean get a mug please they're limited edition they're limited edition. <laughs> Made to order. Made to order. I can't even uh, get my dad to buy one yet, but one more. Yeah, that's right. It's going to happen though. <laughs> okay. Well, here we are. Set phasers. It is, uh, it's Friday night and the mood is right. It is a uh, star date 20925.8. And uh, today we are discussing uh, season two, episodes five and six of Star Trek Discovery. Yeah, we are. Yeah. And uh, things are a little crazy. How are you doing, Steph? I'm doing okay. Things are a little crazy. We're surviving. Things are crazy. Yeah. This is, listen, this is all we can do. You know, I mean. Trek will see uh, us through. Trek will see us through. Words define us. But, uh, you know, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Yes. Well, we normally do this. I don't think we do this when anyone sees it. No, this we is don't. Usually this is just, just between us. us. <laughs> Well, now you know, listener and viewer. Listen to the listeners. We give the Vulcan salute whenever we're done talking. That's our sign off. Bye. Uh, (laughs) All right. Uh, Well, I've got the Ractagino in my cup. Are we ready to? Let's run it down. down? It's time to run it down. Can you run it down for me? Okay, so this is the rundown. We're starting with season two, episode five, Saints of Perfection. Imperfection, Saints of Imperfection. (laughs) Saints of Imperfection. Uh, Okay, so just a brief last time on Discovery. Uh, they were trapped by a weird sphere and that was sort of the A plot line. But the B plot line was that Tilly, her like imaginary friend May turned out to actually be like a, a mushroom interdimensional parasite that they pulled out of her, but then took over her and built a cocoon around her and said I had, it had plans for her. And then when they looked in the cocoon, Tilly was gone. And that was the end of the episode. Yes, all were shocked. And in fact, I think Stamus goes, no, at the end of the episode, which is very satisfying. For me. It is. I don't know why. <clears throat> um, okay, so this episode begins with Michael running and there's a voiceover and she's being very existential. She's running, obviously, to the uh, 
engineering laboratory area to figure out where what huh Tilly, my best friend, is gone. Um, and so we get like a montage of everybody working on things, and Stamets is still like working on it. He's gonna try to figure out how to get Tilly back. And uh, Michael's sort of going through the motions on the bridge. He has a great line, which maybe I'll save for the quotes, but basically, no, because it's important for the plot. She basically is like, you know, words define us, but there's no word for that awful feeling of uncertainty. And she says, you know, she wished she could have faith, but she can't. But, uh, oh, she says, I want to have faith, but in its absence, only duty remains. That's pretty good. Mm. That's pretty good. Okay. We've got some great quotes the next two episodes, I think. Yes, there's some excellent quotes, uh, including some some ancient Greek uh, quotes, which neither here nor there, but obviously I Googled the whole thing. So anyway, they're on the bridge, and the first real action that happens is they're still trailing Spock's shuttle. uh, And they finally catch up to it, but its shields are up, and Pike tries to raise Spock on the comms and there's no response. And then the shuttle does something weird. Spock fires on them. They've caught up to him like outside of this nebula. He fires on the nebula, which causes this huge blowback, which overloads the sensors. And then he does a complete stop. So Discovery goes right past him. And then he goes past Discovery and blah, blah, blah. It's all crazy. But then Discovery like shoots his, his propulsion and he's dead in the water. And they tractor the ship in and they go down to the shuttle bay because they're like, we found Spock and the shuttle doors open and out walks, not Spock, but Giorgio. Yes. And then we go to credits. So when we come back from credits, Pike and Giorgio and Michael are doing a walk and talk, a little Thomas Schlame special. And Pike is sort of like, he's not quite grilling Giorgio, but you get the sense that he feels something is a bit off. He's like, remember the times at the Academy and blah, 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 and you were so great. And she's like, yeah, 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 yeah. And he's like, what's the deal? And she reveals her Section 31 badge, which is like a black emblem. Yes, the black. Well, we don't know that it's a communicator yet, but because it wasn't at this time, but it is. And uh, she basically says that she's been assigned by Section 31 to find Spock. And so as they're headed into the ready room to talk it over with her, there is a hologram in there. And it's a hologram of the sort of like weird, creepy, shaved head captain of the Section 31 ship, whose name we learn. Captain Leland. Captain Leland. Leland. And, and, and Pike has history with Leland, too. Apparently they went through stuff, you know, back in the day. And they, they exchanged some veiled barbs about... Uh, Leland uh, sort of doing better in gray areas and Pike being a little holier than thou and so on and so forth. Anyway, Pike makes some uh, a case for Spock. He's like, listen, I know my man. I don't think he murdered these people. And Leland's like, listen, we have to find him because he killed like three Federation people and that's our job and that's what we're here to do. And if you know stuff about Spock and you want to talk about things that are going on in his head and all that stuff, we will send a liaison from Section 31 to to hang out with you and your ship and collect information. Uh, and then Michael escorts Giorgio out and they have some terse communications. But the main part is that Michael says, if you lay a hand on my brother, dot, dot, dot. And Giorgio sort of just smiles and walks away. Ha, ha, ha. So things are a little complex. Now it's like a race to find Spock. Meanwhile, back in the lab, Stamets is still trying to find Tilly. And what he has discovered is that there is no... DNA trace of Tilly in the cocoon. So if Tilly had been eaten, there'd at least be some like 
molecule or atom or some gene strand, some evidence that Tilly was in there, but she's completely absent from the cocoon. And so they theorize that she was not eaten, but transported. The, the, the cocoon is like the, the chamber. It transports someone into the mycelial network. And so they, just, they need to go into the network to save Tilly. Tilly is still alive. And just as they come to that revelization, revelization, Rev- just as they come to that, I tried to say revelation and realization <laughs> at the same time, and I'm sticking with it. It's a good word. I like it. Revelization. Just as they came to that revelization, it's like a realization that you revel in. Mm. Um, Tilly, we cut to Tilly, who wakes up in the cocoon, freaks out. She gets pulled out by May, who still looks like May, but we know May looks like that big, weird slug. And basically May's like, hey, I brought you here to my home in the mycelial network where we are, you know, she again says her species is called the JASEP. And what they do is they break down organic matter in the mycelial network and turn it into things that the mycelial network can use because it's not quite normal matter there. And she's brought Tilly there. Why? To, quote, kill a monster. Exciting. Uh, back on Discovery, we find out that the Section 31 liaison is none other than Ash Tyler. So that's going to go great. Oh, totally. And what could, yeah, what could go Pike, wrong? What could go wrong? There's no history there. Uh, Pike is uh, immediately suspicious of Tyler. He's suspicious of Giorgio. He tries to ask Michael about it. And Michael says it's kind of a long conversation because Pike doesn't know that Giorgio is from... is not normal Giorgio. She's Terran Giorgio. She's former Emperor Giorgio. Anyway... Michael goes to sit down with Tyler and he can't tell her why he's in section 31. So she doesn't know about his whole Klingon thing and the baby and the monks and the killing and the fake heads thrown into volcanoes. It's complicated and people are telling the half truths to each other all over the place. But Tyler does promise Michael that he will not let Giorgio hurt Spock. Um, Meanwhile, in the mycelial network, Tilly is being uh, shown the devastation wrought by this monster. And it's kind of like, my celiac network's like this glowy, flowy, ethereal, like like a rave in slow motion of neon particles. But then where the monster has been, it's like this evil, red, thorny, horribleness, and it's poisonous on the trees and all that stuff. And uh, they are sort of like... Anyway, the poison kills the Jasep when they touch it. So they can't touch the monster, so that's why they brought Tilly in, because they think Tilly can kill the monster. And Tilly says she will help as long as May agrees to get her back to Discovery when it's all over. And May agrees. um, So in the meantime, Stamets is, they have a plan. The plan is a little harebrained, for lack of a better word. Essentially, the plan is this. They will, whenever they do a, a jump using the spore drive, they enter the mycelial network for like nanoseconds and then go wherever across the universe and then come out of the mycelial network. So they want to do is a half jump where they like half embed the ship in the mycelial network. And then they can, the people who are inside the, I remember we'd never knew what to call this chamber, but they called it something on this episode, the reaction chamber. That's right. People in the reaction chamber will be able to walk into the mycelial network unharmed and get back out. Everyone else will have to stay in parts of the ship that are not touching the mycelial network or they will be, their bodies will be like bent around the dimensional axes. Yeah. Anyway, it'll be gross. And they mentioned what happens on the, is it the Klingon ship or? It was. was that ship? Anyway, the Klingons were was, all messed up. 
the Klingons who raided the ship after yes. the ship tried to do that weird, yeah, and I forgot what that was called. I want to say Edison, but that's not right. Where they Can't found the tardigrade. Where they found the tardigrade. Yes, indeed. Uh, from from season one. Uh, so they're going to try this plan, and basically the way they figure it, the the JASEP, which we've learned break down organic matter, titanium, tritanium, excuse me, which the hell is made of, <laughs> is not their favorite food, but they'll have like maybe an hour once they're inside the network before the hull completely gets ripped apart by the JASEP. So they have an hour. Pike agrees to the plan. Um, Stamets and Michael gear up. They go into the reaction cube. There is a black alert. The ship does a uh, half jump. And the way it's like shown in the show, they like embed half in like the wavy. It's weird. And uh, Tilly and May see the discovery slam into their like mycelial area. And so Tilly's like, we should go to the discovery because if we're going to kill a monster, we're going to have better stuff for killing it there than just my bare hands that you brought me here with. And the mycelia immediately start attacking the hull. But Michael and Sam step through and Tilly and May are in an empty part of the ship and they find evidence of the monster. It's like this black goop floating up. It's pretty gross and ominous. And so Tilly uh, goes down into the armory to get, uh, I think it's a type C rifle or something like that. Um and meanwhile, Michael and Stamets pick up one human life sign once they've stepped through into the mycelial area. And so they all wind up converging on each other inside the bowels of the ship where no one else is because everyone else is avoiding that part. And that's where May explains like the monster began as like the surge of unknown energy and it was indestructible and they tried to put it back together. But then like it started to kill them and then they couldn't touch it and stuff like that. I mean, while she's telling the story, there's like moaning happening, slowly rising. And as they look over, they find the monster and the monster is none other than Dr. Hugh Culber. What? Yes. Dr. Hugh Culber, the, the husband of, of Stamets and who was murdered untimely, whose untimely death was at the hands of Ash Tyler and his Manchurian candidate vote. Yes. We, we faith of the hearted him. We did. And yet, yes, here he is in the mycelial network because matter is neither created nor destroyed mm. the conservation of energy. Crazy. Uh, well, matter crazy. can be destroyed. I didn't quite say right, but it's crazy. It's crazy, crazy, man. And apparently, the the what has been what is the poison is like the bark of some tree there in mycelial land. Yes, is poisonous to the Jasep, the yield tree, and uh, Hugh, who who went Hugh. there when he died, and Hugh, 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 <laughs> Hugh, uh, Hugh, Hugh, um, <laughs> and uh, anyway, he's been using that. It's poisonous, but it stops him from trying to break him down and destroy him. So he's been using it not as a weapon, but as armor. Meanwhile, Discovery is getting pretty jacked up by the mycelial network and the mycelia are through 78% of the hull and there are explosions all over the place and the network penetrates the bridge and so the bridge is starting to get swallowed by the network and then Tyler does something very peculiar. He taps his badge and he says, we need help and a ship, like cloaked ship comes out of nowhere. Guess who? It's... Uh, what's his face? I forgot his Leland. name. Leland. I hate him. Anyway, it's Leland. <laughs> his name is beneath remembering. Uh, so it's Leland. He was there the whole time. Didn't offer to help. But then Ash alerts him. And so they do this like weird, they send like these three drones down that create like a tractor net 
and they're so now they're pulling the disco, but they're not pulling it out. They're just stabilizing it so it doesn't fall into the mycelial network. It's a very crazy and weird moment. And basically, Leland's like, I can give you five minutes. So the Pike is like, I need more time. And that's what Leland's going to give him and so on and so forth. Hugh, who is not rightly in his right mind, is running through the mycelial network to get away from Stamets and Michael and May and Tilly uh, because he thinks they're figments of his imagination. Because as you may recall from season one, uh, when a person is trapped in the mycelial network, it's a lot like just tripping. And so he runs and hides, but Stamets is able to find him and able to bring him around to the fact that he is not merely a figment of Hugh's imagination by... Uh, mentioning a story about going to a museum and how excited Culber was and how Culber held out his hand because he was walking so fast and Stamets took it and Stamets offers his hand to Culber. And uh, that is when they all realized, like, yeah, okay, so Culber showed up here because when he died, Stamets, who was, like, in the middle of this weird, like, sort of, like, fugue state in season one, had a moment of lucidity, saw that he was dead, and because he was like connected to the network, I guess he like transported Hugh to the network when he was like half crazy or whatever. Well, there was that scene. It was a cold open in season two when um, someone's working on the ship and then they just discover uh, Stamets holding the body of Culber down in like the bows of the ship. And he's just like, his eyes are all faded or whatever. So maybe he like, grabbed the body and moved it around, didn't know what he's doing, but he left it in the Mycelia Network. And that's where Hugh has been ever since, slowly losing his mind. So they're like, maybe they can get back. Maybe they can get back through the through the the reaction chamber. And so Leland, meanwhile, on his uh, Section 31 chips in five minutes, he's like, I got to get out of here. I think I'm going to go. He's about to cut and run. But Giorgio stops him. She like overloads some couple reactor to get extra power to the Wangle Dank. And it allows him to get like 90 extra seconds, like three more minutes. And in order to like strong arm Leland to do it, she mentioned some, some blackmail, something that he did that was not on the up and up several years ago. And she sort of intimates that she has broken through the firewall into his private files. And therefore she has the upper hand upon him as far as information gathering. As as Discovery is preparing to disengage after 90 seconds, the crew, the away team is able to get back to the chamber. Oops, I got excited. I'm sorry. The away team is able to get back to the chamber and they're like, okay, just step through. And he was starting to trust them, but it's not quite lucid. But as, so Stamus goes through and he's like, look, it's so easy. You can just go back and forth. Give me your hand. But then as Q tries to put his arm through, his arm disappears. It does not appear on the other side. And so they realize that Though Hugh's consciousness is here in the mycelial network, his entire body is made up of these exotic mycelial cells that uh, basically cannot exist in the real world. And then Hugh's like, you know what? Just leave me. It's fine. You know, you got to learn to let me go. You can't hold on to me. You can't stay here and I can't go there. And it's a tearful goodbye. It's really sad. And Hugh wipes off the poison geel uh, tree stuff and he's, the Jossep start eating him. But then Tilly remembers, hey, you reconstituted me uh, out of, from, from normal space into the mycelial network. Um, and all you need is the raw material. So you could take the idea of Hugh Culber and send it back to the cocoon, which is still on the, the disco. 
and use that DNA, that information to create a hue that can exist in the real world. May is sort of hesitant to do it because that is the only connection that she and Tilly will have. And apparently they develop a friendship while one was living inside of the other. Oh, yes. Pinky swears. Pinky swears. A pinky swear. Um, pinky swears. There was some pinky swearing. And so they pinky swear that they will see each other again somehow, some way. But they will they will save Hugh. And so the away team goes back and Disco does complete their jump out of the space. And uh, the cocoon, after they stare at it for a while, sort of worried, like melts into the form of Culber. And I wrote New Body Who Dis. And uh, yeah. Oh, Nota Bene. Nota Bene. Nota Bene. Uh, and good evening to you. And when George, uh, when uh, Disco, <laughs> what a stupid joke. Uh, <laughs> I love it though. Okay, I'm I back. Do. I'm back. Uh, when Discovery manages to get out of their like awful predicament, Giorgio has a little private little smile to herself, which I thought was so was very telling and cute. I don't know. We don't know what her deal is, but I think maybe she and Michael, even though they distrust each other because they're from different timeline universes or whatever, they're still a connection there. And so mm. Giorgio, I think she stalled and, and blackmailed Leland so that she could give Michael extra time because there is a relationship there that they would like to preserve. Mm. Um, and so like the last little bit of the the episode is essentially um, everyone's cool. Pike transports over to the Section 31 ship and uh, Admiral Cornwell is there. Did it. Got it. Got it right. Did it. And Leland, and she sort of dresses them both down. She's like, you guys got to get over whatever garbage you have in between yourself because I need both of you to work together to find Spock and figure out what's going on with these red signals because we took some some readings of the first red signal and we found a bunch of tachyon radiation, which apparently means this red angel figure could be a time traveler of some sort, whatever or whoever it is. Um, Pike is quick to point out it could be a byproduct of cloaking technology or transporters but i mean we all sort of are like okay time travel right um and so she wants disco and and section 31 to work together and uh tyler will become a permanent liaison to discovery so he now becomes part of the ship uh they sort of like shake on it and say sorry or whatever they're like two boys that got yelled at by their like teacher parents or coach or something um, finally, Michael gets a message from Giorgio and they have a conversation in Mike's room in Mike's room in Michael's room, uh, regarding the whole Spock thing. And, you know, Giorgio's like, listen, she just wants to find Spock so that she can prevent other people who are more trigger happy from finding him. And Michael doesn't quite believe that. And Giorgio says, Hey, just trust me. And Michael says, said the scorpion to the frog and calling back to the quote, the voiceover quote that Michael made earlier. Giorgio's sign-off is, have a little faith, Michael. <laughs> mm. But in the absence of faith, there's duty. Uh, and then the very end of it is just uh, the crew all sort of moving through their lives. Tilly is sad about not seeing May, and Samus is looking at Hughes as he's being examined by the doctors, and Pike is looking at Spock's renderings of the Red Angel. And here endeth episode five of season two. <laughs> Saints of Improvision. Okay, I'll throw it. I'll throw it. Hold on. Sorry, you can just make noises. It'll work either way. Whoosh. I mean, it's kind of fun to watch. Uh, okay. 
As long as uh, you're having fun there, buddy. I have fun, and then I have, uh, you know, I like a messy place, but I then I immediately clean up the papers. <sighs> papers can't be on the floor. Okay. I'm going to take a sip of my Ractogeno. Your what? It's Klingon coffee. Oh. Yeah. I thought you might be an Earl Grey hot man. Well, you know, tea, uh, sometimes tea is, is what's called for, but sometimes you got to drink some Ractogeno, get that Klingon coffee in there, which I assume is just coffee to the nth degree, just super like blood coffee, blood and honor coffee. Okay. Are you ready? Can we talk about season episode six? Yes, I just want to Kapla. to you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Kapla. Kapla to you. Kapla to you. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, okay. Episode six is called The Sound of Thunder. And this is an exciting episode. Um, so it begins with a Saru voiceover. And he's sort of talking about uh, his, you know, as we know, a couple episodes ago, he thought he was dying. and But then his, his ganglia fell out and he didn't die. So he didn't have to go through the Vaharai, which is usually when the Kelpians kill themselves because they think they're going to go mad. It means it's supposed to be culled by the species that also shares their planet called the Ba'ul, who are the predator species, who apparently cull and eat the the Kelpians. And so anyway, he's kind of going through some stuff. And um, both Saru and Hugh are in sickbay at the same time. Saru for his whatever's going on with him and Hugh because of whatever's going on with him. Um, and Hugh doesn't feel quite like himself. And so Saru and Hugh share some words, which I know is going to be in our quotable moments because it's a pretty great quote from Saru. Uh, at the same time, Tilly, Arium, and Michael are going through the information they got from the sphere. If you recall, that sphere they ran into gave them like a like a just a huge data dump of like information of the last <clears throat> one hundred thousand years. Um, of information, so they're kind of going, they're starting to parse through this enormous amount of information. Uh, Saru gets his results in the lab, and post Vahara, he's basically nominal, he's fine, everything's back to normal, except where his ganglia were, the ganglia that used to come out whenever he sensed a threat, or as he called it, the coming of death. Um, some new, like, something's growing in that looks like teeth, basically, or spikes, says the doctor. And she's like, is that normal? And he's like, I don't know. None of us have ever lived this long. We all kill ourselves before we go through the Vahara. That's kind of the thing. And also in his like brain chemistry, his fear responses are being repressed. So he's sort of, this is like a Kelpian without fears is a new entity for all, including Saru himself. Uh, Tyler, Pike, and Michael are talking about the Red Angel, and they're talking about these time incursions and what the Tachyon thing is what, and Pike thinks it's a person and maybe sending a message, but Tyler, representing Section 31, thinks it might be an enemy, and that maybe, like, Tyler brings up the idea that is are these red signs bringing discovery to places to help them save people from catastrophic events, or is it showing up and causing catastrophic events and disco is like following it around? So it's a good question. And basically they end with, we got to find Spock. Everyone's got to find Spock because he was drawing pictures of the red angel months before it showed up. And also knew of the red angel when he was a child to help him find Michael. So it's all this stuff is building episode upon episode upon episode and the search for Spock, <laughs> the name of uh, the third Star Trek movie. Incidentally, if anyone was concerned about that. The, and the search for Spock continues. 
uh, a as they're discussing this, a new signal is detected outside of Federation space. Where? Hmm, I wonder. Saru's homeworld of Kaminar? 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 Any, any ideas on that? I think it's Kaminar. Saru's homeworld of Kaminar? Why, yes. Smash cut to credits. We get a crash course, basically, on the the world of Kaminar. And so there's two species that live on it, the Kelpians and the Ba'ul. And they live in something that they ascribe to as like a faith called the Great Balance. And this is brought up because they're like, do you guys know of any red angel in your mythology? Never heard of a red angel. They believe in this Great Balance. And that is essentially that the Kelpians, when they reach the Vaharai point of their lives, they go and stand before this thing in their village and they are taken, they are culled by the Ba'ul. But no one has seen a Ba'ul. They're very reclusive. In oh, I wrote it down because I knew Steph would want me to say it. Oh no, what? this is not a this is not a date. He just says in living memory, which I don't think deserves the the mm-hmm. movie announcer voice. So no one has no one in living memory has ever seen a Ba'ul. So these the Kelpians are culled sort of by these devices. Um the Ba'ul are warp-capable species. The Kelpians are not. So this is like there's a first contact that happened with the Ba'ul. And they spoke to the Federation, but then they turned out to be hostile and they were like, don't ever come back. And the Kelpians don't know anything about space flight or warp or whatever. They basically live a sort of like a, almost a pre-industrial style life. But these two societies overlap, these two planets. Um, so they get finally to Kaminar. The signal disappears before they get there, of course. And the Ba'ul are not replying to any hails, but they are scanning the weapon systems of the Discovery. And so it is decided like maybe we should go down and talk to the Kelpians because maybe this is a this is a reason to ignore the General Order One, not yet called the Prime Directive, General Order One, and establish first contact because they need to figure out what's going on with this red angel business and these big red things in the sky. Apparently, every Kelpian village has a priest, and the priest is sort of an interlocutor uh liaison, if you will, between the Kelpians of their village and the Baul the monolithic Baul technic society. I don't know. And so they're sort of like traders, but sort of not like traders. It's a, they, they advocate for the great balance, this whole uh, giving yourself up for the Raharai and, and, and um, Pike is thinking maybe just send Michael down. Cause she's the xenoanthropologist. And uh, Saru has a bit of an issue with it. Saru, who no longer has any sort of fear responses, basically starts getting very uh, postures aggressively with the captain about not being invited on this away mission. And Michael has to step in, uh, let calm heads prevail and say Saru would be good. Maybe they should go together because Saru will know the lay of the land. And Pike agrees to that, but he tells Saru, this is not a mission to go down there and start a civil war and be like, Kelpians, rise. We shall destroy the Great Balance. It is a mission to go down there, find out about this Red Angel business, and get out. So Saru agrees to that, but a bit of a standoffish way. We go to sickbay. This is like a little quick aside. Hugh and Stamets and the doctor are there. And basically Hugh's whole... His scans have also come back normal. Everyone is normal, except uh, his body was just made. Everything about him is new. It's him, but it, it, brand new. If there's any way to, to, it's like you die in a video game and you came back as you, but you're brand new. It's um, a great explanation. Thank you. <laughs> I am a nerd. And uh, Hugh's a bit jumpy and he says he's, he, 
his senses are a bit like kind of weird and it's going to take a while for him to settle. And Stamets is, seems a bit oblivious to Hugh's discomfort. Um, but there's definitely something there that Hugh is not feeling quite himself. And Stamets is really just overjoyed that Hugh is back. Um, but he's cleared for resuming sort of like normal activity. He doesn't need to be monitored day and night. So, you know, Hugh doesn't look super happy about that, but I guess he's happy that he's not um, going to turn into a big spore monster. Michael and Saru, <laughs> I thought about it for a while. Michael and Saru beam down to Saru's village and they see this, the pylon there. It's like this weird, like floating thing. So apparently it's like a panopticon, but they have a name for it. The watchful eye. The Ba'ul leave these in every village across the planet. There's like this big, these villages are otherwise super rural, like huts. And they seem like they're basically the, the Kelpians are farmers. Um, herbivores i would guess uh and they live very modest like non-technological lives but in the center of every village there is a floating like i would say maybe 100 foot high pillar um that monitors all activity in the village and it's called the watchful eye apparently that's where the priests send people who are having their vaharai and they're taken they're culled by the watchful eye uh, Saru's father, it comes out in this conversation, was a priest of the village. And so Saru is sort of conflicted over that because that means he was sort of helping to maintain the great balance and it's, you know, it's complicated. Um, they walk into the village and the first person they happen upon is Sirana. Which you would only know because the first time she was mentioned was two episodes ago when Saru thought he was dying. But it's Saru's sister whom he misses who, because he hasn't seen her in 18 years or something like that. Uh, since he, How old do we think Saru is? It's a great question. We don't really know how old Kelpians live to be. You know, But we know, I guess I get, I was like, I was wondering how old he might be. So I think, what if he left when he was, what, 18? So minimum right. he'd be sort of mid-30s. Yeah, mid to late thirties. Sister was perhaps, right. and they look quite similar in age. I'm, yeah, I'm just getting caught up in that. But well, when they do, you know, I told you not to have the flashback because it's such a brief flashback. It's just not even necessary. But uh, what comes out in their conversation over the uh, Fridalia flower tea is that uh, Saru use the technology of the Ba'ul to contact whatever was out there. He was sort of aspiring. He, there must be, did I already do make a bell from Beating the Beast reference like two episodes ago? He thinks there must be more than this provincial life. And so he yes, uses, the, I, I'm sure it's worth it. it. It's worth yeah, it. I'll do it twice. Again. Hey, I'll do it again. I guarantee it. And um, so he sort of used the technology and that's why, um, the ship that was carrying Giorgio showed up. Giorgio was a lieutenant at that time, but they saw the his uh, thing go up in the air, and that's how he was he was taken asylum. He just wanted to be away from, um, I guess, basically the Great Balance. It's kind of a complicated thing they don't really go into. Um, but Saru's father is dead from the Vaharai several years ago, and um, and Serana is kind of taken with Michael as the first alien she's ever seen. 
And over tea, they sort of are civil, but then also Serana expresses extreme frustration that Saru left and never contacted them to know that they were alive. And they lived in fear that he had been culled by the Ba'ul for his like seditions or heresies. And they lived in fear that they would also be subject to reprisals. Um, but uh, Michael's able to bring it around to sort of like they're looking for a figure called the Red Angel. And did they see a big red spot in the sky? And Serana calls it the fiery sign. And then the ground starts shaking inexplicably. And Serana says, you have to go. It must be the Ba'ul. They must have seen you enter the village. Which of course they did because they had the huge, the watchful eye floating over there. Serana tells Saru to go and never come back, essentially. And the pylon lights up in a weird way. And then Michael and Saru beam out. When they return to Disco, uh, Disco's under a yellow alert because the Ba'ul are finally hailing Disco. There's no visual, but there is a voice, a sort of ominous, low voice, not unlike the one I use for long numbers, uh, speaking to Pike. Uh, and Pike is asking about the Red Angel, and they don't care. They just want Saru back. They say, you have something that belongs to us. The Kelpian. You will return the Kelpian to us. And Saru asks, Pike asks Saru to stay out of it, stay cool, and Saru does not. He erupts, and he starts yelling at the Ba'ul, and he's saying, blah, 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 you told us a lie. This is nonsense. And the Ba'ul say, you don't even know what you are. You think that you've liberated yourself. Well, we will not allow it. You will return it to us or we will destroy the village. And Saru is about to do something drastic, but then Pike says, no, you are dismissed from the bridge, Mr. Saru. And so Saru leaves the bridge, and that is when a red alert is called, and everyone has to head to battle stations. Hit us. Red alert. So while everyone is running to battle stations because no one really knows what's happening, uh, Oh, yeah, 10 Ba'ul ships actually head to intercept the Discovery, so they're being surrounded. That's why they call the Red Alert. Uh, Saru uses the confusion to run to the transporter room, dismiss the person who's there, set a, like, time transport, run up on the pad, but Michael figures it out. She runs in behind him. She holds her face around him. She says, don't make me use this, Saru. You can't go down to the planet. He says, wouldn't you do the same for your own brother? And then she's not able to shoot him. And so then he transports down to the planet. And... Once that happens, the uh, Ba'ul call their dogs off, but they also take Saru. And they are unable to track Saru past a certain point. He just, his like, signal just disappears. And so that is the situation they are in. Tilly and Michael decide, listen, let's go into the sphere and, sphere and check out everything we know on the Kaminar, the Kelpian, and the Ba'ul. Let's just see if we can find, cross-reference these things since the sphere's been around for 100,000 years. Maybe it will have some information on Kaminar over the years, and that'll give us some information we can find. And, and Arium does find the information. Um, and uh, I'll come back to that. Saru awakens in a chamber, a dark chamber with a like dark pool in it and Serana is beamed in and and they have a little conversation Serana says she wishes Saru had never come back because she had thought he would be free she was happy that he was free anyway these two weird drones enter and they scan Saru and Serana and they attack Saru and they pin him to the wall both arms and neck basically he's restrained and that's when something very uh, ominous rises out of the pool like a sort of like the alien from Alien, but also like a cloaked 
figure. I don't know quite how to describe it. It's like oily and black and it watery. It was like in season one of Next Generation, the black thing that comes yes, out of it. Yes, it is. Yes. It does raise up sort of like that, yeah. but it's a little more articulated. But yes. Yes, because that takes the form of anything that it wants to, but this has a, its own form. It's Agreed. really creepy. It's a bit like Edward Scissorhands covered in oil. Yeah. I think of it as like a giant crayfish, humanoid crayfish covered in like oil slick. Mm. That's, that's that's where my head went because I find crayfish terrifying. Um, and I don't want them to be any bigger than they are. So uh, this thing comes out of the water and the the it's basically talking to that to Saru and and it tells Saru that the Ba'ul were originally the prey and the Kelpians were the predators and they're the ones who went crazy. And at the same time, on Discovery, the okay, here we go, some numbers. On Discovery, they find out from the spear that over 2,000 years ago, the Kelpians were the dominant species on the planet and they very nearly wiped out the Ba'ul. They were the predators. They, the The small remainder of Ba'ul who were there were able to sort of kill all the evolved Kelpians and never let the Kelpians get past the point where they're like protective, their juvenile ganglia drop out and they become uh, super duper predators. And so the, the Ba'ul on the planet says the Kelpians do not deserve a second chance. The Great Balance is the only thing stopping the Kelpians from destroying the, the ecology of the planet. And quote, the truth will be contained. And then it sinks back into its murk. And the drones basically try to like drill a hole in Saru's head or something. I'm not sure. Mm. That's kind of weird. Oh, I forgot to mention the, what happened with his teeth ganglia. Yeah, when the Ba'ul first shows up, the teeth ganglia come out and they look like combs and they go around his head and then they shoot pins at the, like shoot these like little dart things at the Ba'ul. At the Ba'ul but there's like a... a force filled up so it doesn't hit the bowel so now we see oh, like i wondered what that was because yeah. i didn't see them hit anything and i yeah. thought they just went into the bowel and the bowel had evolved and it didn't hurt them anymore no the bowel i think are still very vulnerable to the to the kelpians i think they just use their technology to to lord it over them essentially um so anyway yeah saru's ganglia are killers but the whole technology when they're all covered in oil how can they do anything how have they how have they become warp capable when they have no opposable thumbs you don't, we don't know what's going on underneath the, the oil there. There could be like three thumbs. Oh. You know, I'm just saying. We haven't okay. we haven't really gotten a good look at these bowel. Ugh, crayfish. Okay, so um, the drone attacks Saru, and then he calls on reserves of strength and bravery now that he no longer has ganglia, and he, like, breaks the restraints, and he starts just breaking drones. It's pretty badass. And he kills a bunch of drones, and he frees Serana, and Serana now realizes that the Great Balance is also a lie. Saru uses parts of the drones that he's broken to contact Discovery, even though they still can't find him. And basically, together, they come up with yet another, what I would describe as a harebrained plan. Essentially, they're going to take the signal that caused Saru to enter the Vaharai early when they were trapped near the sphere they're going to take that, juice it up, so that it causes, if they broadcast it to the planet, all the Kelpians on the planet to experience the Vaharai at the same time and at an accelerated rate. So it won't take all day, and they won't think they have a cold. They're just going to, boom, be Vaharai-ing. Uh, 
And so they figure out how to do it. And, and uh, Saru hacks the technology and they start everyone, all the Kelpians start going through the Vaharai and they're screaming. And the Ba'ul decide, oh, no, 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 no. This is not cool. So they start lighting up all the pylons on the planet and they're basically going to destroy all of the Kelpians before they change because they view them as such a threat. Uh, uh, and a structure comes out of the big lake that is over 50 kilometers in diameter. And it begins to rise from the lake and it's rotating. And they think that maybe that's like the main sort of HQ of the Ba'ul and where Saru and Serana might be. Uh, but uh, Serana survives her accelerator Vaharai. The Ba'ul are still attempting to activate the pylons and to kill off all the Kelpians. Pike basically sends him a message like, listen, we want you to be able to negotiate with them. We'll do everything we can as Starfleet to help you, but we will not allow you to kill this entire species. If you don't accept this new balance, you will become enemies of Starfleet. So consider that. At the same time, all 4,065 pylons in every village have been activated, and they're now going to destroy uh, all the Kelpians. And Disco is trying to destroy the pylons, but there's too many of them to destroy from orbit all at the same time. And then something very mysterious happens. Uh, a little red spot forms in the atmosphere, and the little red spot forms lower in the atmosphere, and the little red spot forms another layer below in the atmosphere. And then right down by the big orbiting, like circular thing that kind of looks like a space station slash spaceship, uh, the red angel appears outside of the glass, and Saru is able to see it. Uh, and the Red Angel and Saru just kind of stare at each other for a while. Uh, and we get a real good look at the Red Angel now through Saru's eyes because apparently, you know, the Kelpians have a greater command of, of like, light spectrum. They can see more. And it looks sort of humanoid, but it definitely has wings. And um, anyway, the Red Angel causes a massive energy spike that uh, disables all the shields and weapons on the planet, the entire planet. Mm. An impossibly large spike of energy. And then the Red Angel disappears. Uh, so the Kelpians emerge after the Vaharai. The Ba'ul are nowhere to be seen. And Serana steps through and she speaks to some people in the village and she says, we're going to now assert a true balance. There will be no more fear. On Disco, Pike shows Tyler Saru's report that basically, yes, he was able to see. It appears humanoid. It appears to be in a mechanized suit. And it appears to be utilizing some technology with which no one in Starfleet has ever heard. You know, like no, with which no one is familiar. Just completely just advanced beyond uh, sense. And uh, I think Tyler is still pretty skeptical. He's still worried that this is the beginning of some sort of war or this is an enemy action. And not Pike. Tyler thinks this is the beginning of some sort of enemy action that the, the Red Angel could be some sort of nefarious presence. And Pike is is definitely he isn't really showing all his cards, but he thinks that Section 31 is being a little too paranoid. Um Saru Saru brings Serana up to Disco and he's like, you know, he's like, hey, check it out. She's able to see the planet. And you know, the first contact thing that happens every now and again on Star Trek. But like, that's your planet down there. They're like, what? Um, and then he offers to like have her go along with him, which is insane because they're about to, they're like obviously in the middle of some very dangerous stuff. But she's like, you know what? 
I think someone needs to stick around to help people sort of process what's happened after we put them through a like ridiculously insane sort of adolescent process. And that's what I'm going to do. And she says, you can come back anytime to visit. And he says, I sure will. And then Saru and Michael, uh, Saru basically thanks Michael for helping him out and supporting him. And they quote Aeschylus together. That was the Greek quote. It's a pretty nice little quote. Um, they're basically, it's about how pain and, and suffering allow you to, to grow and achieve wisdom. Uh, and Saru says, listen, this experience, as rough as it was, allows me to understand even more that you need to do everything you can for your brother. And Michael agrees. And that is the end of episode six, season two of Star Trek Discovery. The sound of thunder. Papers thrown. Are your quotable moments on those papers? No. Good for you. I know what I'm doing now. I've got a. I got a process now. Um, should we just talk about stats real quick? Yes. Let's talk about stats. Set phases to stats. Okay. Well, listen. There are no phaser stats, and there are no real stamets stingers. But we did have more alerts in this episode. More audible alerts in this episode than ever before. There was one black alert, one yellow alert. And over the cross of both episodes, three red alerts. So if alerts. we're yeah, if we're just keeping track of like how many alerts are happening, it seems like these are pretty much heating up pretty intensely here on Disco. Like there's a lot of alerts going down. It's a lot of alarm and people going to battle stations. Um, that's all I got for stats. Um, what about my favorite quotable moments? Everyone's favorite is quotable Everyone's moments. Everyone's favorite. Well. Uh, I have a quote from episode five. I know that you have something from six. I'll, I'll do my quote from episode five. I really enjoyed, um, obviously, the you know, I want to have faith, but in his absence, only duty was great. But, but before they do the crazy thing where they jump the ship into half the mycelial network, half out, and there basically it could be almost a suicide moment, hmm. Pike gives a speech to the crew. And I really thought it was nice what he says. He says, uh, <clears throat> Starfleet is a promise. I give my life for you. You give your life for me. And nobody gets left behind. He's a pithy but eloquent captain. Indeed he is. Yeah. That was, that was what I had for... Uh, I also liked the words find who we are, but there is no word for the unique agony, for the unique agony of uncertainty. Unique agony. Unique agony. Unique agony. Uh, would you like to do your quote from episode six? Certainly. And this was uh, Saru to Hugh. <laughs> and Saru to Hugh said, perhaps, and, and this is when Hugh was, you know, having this sort of existential crisis of not really knowing who he was and how mm-hmm. he came to be. Yeah. But Saru said, perhaps, in feeling less like you were, you are more like who you were meant to become. That's that's that. pretty solid. I also it was great because that happens right at the top of the episode, mm. and then the the Aeschylus quote that Saru and Michael sort of Michael starts it and Saru finishes it because they're the best friends. Um, is he who learns must suffer, and even in our sleep, pain that cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart. Yeah, so I looked that up because. Um, Spoiler alert, I'm a nerd, and I've read a few Aeschylus plays. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Sorry. Spoiler alert. 
Yeah, just in case you didn't know, if you've been listening all this time and you thought, damn, he's cool, let me break that myth for you. So I went and hunted that down. It is uh, from, it's from Agamemnon by Aeschylus, which is apparently part of the Aresteia trilogy, which has a lot of murdering, and but it's the end of the curse on Agamemnon. And the point is, the full quote goes like this, and I think it ties into the, the Saru quote. He who learns must suffer, and even in our sleep, pain that cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart, and in our own despite, against our will, comes wisdom to us by the awful grace of God. That's pretty good. Mm. That's pretty good. Pretty wisdom good. comes to us you know against our will painfully sometimes mm. and i and i actually i'm not going to comply i'm not complying here i just want to just say in summary of where the season is headed not a this is non-controversial <laughs> non-confrontational uh that everyone is sort of in this state of flux this is a season where i feel like last season michael was constantly in a state of flux michael is pretty solidly michael in the season and everyone around her is going through huge sea change, like uh, experiences in their their characters. You know, Saru realizing that he the, the sphere was a lie, and and Tilly goes into the the mycelial network, and now has a connection with an interdimensional friend, and Hugh comes back from the dead, and we don't even know what's going on with Spock. It's just so everything around Michael is insane. So I think it's interesting, this discussion of like that through suffering comes wisdom. Mm-hmm. I wondered if that, if um, ignorance is bliss was sort of the opposite of that quote in terms of if that was like the genesis of it. Yeah. I mean, it's perfect. It's a perfect counterbalance to that. It's like you can, you can get wise and not have pain drip drop by drop on your heart while you're sleeping. Um, or you can go through this and become even more badass. You know what I mean? Indeed. Yeah. Okay. So shall we talk about next time? Next time on set phasers. Okay. So next time on set phasers, we're like three weeks out from the premiere of season three. And we're only, as of today, halfway through season two. So we're adding a couple of extra episodes to get through all the material. So our next episode actually will be this coming Sunday. This coming Sunday at yeah 6.30 Eastern Standard Time. We will be uh, reviewing episodes seven and eight of season two of Star Trek Discovery. Those are Light and Shadows and If Memory Serves Collectively. So uh, if you're not doing anything Sunday evening, why don't you come hang out with us and talk about Star Trek, all right? Check the eyebrows. And um, so that'll be our next show. If you enjoy this show, whether you're watching live or listening to us after the fact, you can join us every Friday or this time on Sunday on Facebook Live or as a podcast every Monday, wherever podcasts come from. Please subscribe Wherever you subscribe. Wherever you subscribe. We are are on Facebook and Instagram at Set Phasers Podcast. Please feel free to follow along and join in the conversation of all things Trek. And if you want to support us in our continuing mission to discover what Discovery has in store for us, we'd only be delighted. You can patronize us. We can take it by going to patreon.com slash setphasers. And our inaugural Netflix watch party will be on 10-4. 
We are. We haven't decided actually, which I think we we were between two episodes, and we need a deciding yeah. vote on our Patreon. Mm-hmm. And it was between TNG, the neutral zone, I believe. TNG, the neutral zone, and what's the other one? It was Voyager, and it was the one where, um, uh, not Chakotay. Who's the Vulcan? I forget. I'm getting mixed up with my Vulcans. Oh uh, yeah, I almost called him Tilk. Tuvok. So, Tuvok. I was going to call him Chakotay. I was getting mixed up. So Tuvok has to mix in with the new crew I think yes so yeah something game maybe I forget what what it's called anyway well, it's a good one it's season one yeah 10 four this is also a Sunday we'll be doing that watch party so if you sign up on patreon.com and become just any tier um you can check out that show with us and uh, I think you'll enjoy I mean you'll be watching it and we'll be talking about it simultaneously. Yes, I don't know how you. you can stand it. In the virtual room. In the virtual room. Anyway. Um. So, yes. Anyway, so until then, and until next time, I am Steph Mans. And I am Aki Burmese. And this has been Set Phasers, a highly illogical Star Trek podcast. Good Lord, computer. End program. Hmm?